0: Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 5 through 11, but our focus will be on uh, verses 9 through 11. Pastor Jason spent the last two weeks in the first part of chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 8, talking about, the humi- talking about the humiliation of Jesus Christ. This is the truth that the very Son of God took on flesh. This is an infinite condescension the son of god who is equal in power and glory to the father became incarnate it would have been the greatest humiliation in the his, in history for him to take on flesh in the house of a king and rule the world without ever leaving the palace to merely leave heaven would have been infinitely more humbling than the most powerful king in the world nebuchadnezzar being turned out of the out of the castle out of the out of the palace, out of the place he lived, and living like a wild animal for seven years, as he did. But the Son of God did more than that. He took on the form of a servant and lowered himself even more. Jesus Christ lowered himself more than we can comprehend, all the way to death in the worst way that man has come up with. This condescension, this humiliation, this voluntary descent from his rightful rank To live in the sweat and dirt and hunger and thirst and work of a sin-cursed world was not for nothing. And he did this with love. He did it willingly. Jesus Christ had a purpose from the moment of his incarnation. Even before his incarnation, his purpose was sure, it was settled. His purpose was to glorify the Father in the salvation of sinners. This is what we see here in this hymn of Christ. Let's read the text. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, your perfect, all-sufficient, inspired, complete word. We thank you for your great grace in giving us this word that we might be taught and reproved and corrected and then trained in righteousness. We pray that you would do all these things for us this morning here through your word by your spirit. We pray that we would be made more complete than what we were before, that we would be equipped for every good work you set before us. We thank you for the incarnation that we celebrated yesterday. We thank you for sending your son that he would live and die and rise and that he was obedient in all things and that All who call on him will be saved. We pray that you would be glorified in the salvation of sinners, even this morning, even here. We pray for those who don't know you yet and are hearing your word preached here or in other places. We pray that by your word, through your spirit, you would do your work, that you would take them by the heart and overcome them, that you would persuade them until by the very faith you give them, they would come into your kingdom. Bring many sinners to yourself, even this morning, Father, for your glory. Father, I pray for myself as I preach, that I would only preach what is helpful, what is beneficial for your people, that you would, by your word, even as I preach, strengthen those who hear and strengthen me as I preach. For your great glory and the salvation of souls, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning is just about as offensive to the world and its values as it is possible to be especially in a climate of so-called equality and tolerance. You see, the idea, the idea of tolerance is that you may believe anything you want to, so long as it falls in line with the orthodoxy of the moment. Being behind the times, even by one day, is unacceptable. This is the first commandment of being an acceptable citizen, in good standing with the world community. Get on the right side of history. And the second is like it. You may not tell anyone what they believe is wrong. Unless, of course, they believe something ridiculous, and they're on the wrong side of history. They believe something totally unbelievable, like Jesus actually lived in space and time and history, that he really was born of a virgin, that he was truly God and truly man, that he lived a perfect life, obedient in every way, that he died on a Roman cross and was buried and rose again on the third day, and that he now sits at the right hand of God and in the end all who ever lived will give an account to him. All these things are bad enough if they are believed behind closed doors. But it's even more offensive to believe that if all these things are true, then Jesus is Lord. He is absolute King of all. And if Jesus is King, that means no one else is. This last point is the one that sets every living person's teeth on edge. Because by nature, we want to be our own lords. We want to be our own kings. We have seen in Romans that sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so, death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam ate the fruit, he determined that he would be his own ruler, his own lord. And this attitude is our inheritance from him. We are born demanding our rights. We are born with the belief that any idea that enters our noggins not only deserves acceptance but should be the law of the land. This isn't hard to prove. All it takes is 5 minutes in a nursery with more than one kid or 3 minutes on the pa- on the playground or 30 seconds at a board meeting. Mankind is an exceedingly selfish creature. It is baked into our very sinful nature, which is why Paul tells the Philippians at the beginning of Philippians 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In our natural state, outside of Christ, this is like telling someone to empty the ocean with a spoon. I know we've spent time in this text, but indulge me, please. Look at what Paul tells them to do. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord. Do nothing from selfishness or pride. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Are you kidding me? This goes against everything, every instinct we are born with. But Paul goes on. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the only way that the previous four verses are even possible. The mindset of humility, of others before yourself, of having the same mind, of maintaining the same love, of being united in spirit, intent on one purpose, all of this is only possible in Christ Jesus. And it is only possible when this common goal, when, when everything is pointing to and everyone is pushing toward the one common goal, and that goal is to glorify Jesus by obedience to him. It is only because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did that we are enabled to do these things. It is only because Jesus humbled himself beyond our comprehension that we have hope. Then to finish last week's text, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And then being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus humbling Himself is something we should never take lightly. Because at some level, this makes sense to us. It can even kind of make sense to the world. The world can handle the thought of God humbling Himself of coming to save us or at least help us, because who couldn't use a little extra help now and then? The world can stand the thought of God giving up power to identify with us because we're pretty awesome. And any God worth his salt would do whatever, would of course give up anything he had to in order to be with us. We are comfortable when the focus is on us and what we think or what we need what we think we want or what we need. We can even stand the thought of being nice to one another, of turning the other cheek and of forgiveness and treating others the way we want to be treated. That's easy to to, to wrap your mind around. Even those who do not believe in Christ as the Son of God can get behind those ideas. This, though, is not the main point. It is not mainly what the Son of God came to do. He did not come mainly to give a moral code or to allow us to live to our full potential. The point of life is not about ourselves. We don't live for ourselves. The first question of the Westminster Larger Catechism is, what is the chief and highest end of man? The answer is, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. Now again, we can begin to wrap our heads around this and even come to accept it if the opposite is also true in our fallen selfishness we think if our chief end is to glorify god and enjoy him forever then god's chief end must be to glorify us and enjoy us forever but that is not the truth that is not how god's work that is not how god works god's chief end what he is most concerned with is not us It is not our comfort or even our salvation. The thing God is most concerned with is His own glory. And that brings us to our text this morning. Verse 9, Therefore, that's all we're going to get to right now. Therefore, in light of the humble obedience of Jesus Christ, in light of everything we've talked about, over the last few weeks, in light of the fact that Jesus emptied himself, in light of the fact that he humbled himself by taking on flesh, in light of the fact that he did everything he was supposed to, God exalted him. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. As we see in Jesus' high priestly prayer, found in John 17, he says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus here is praying out loud for our benefit. He goes over all that he accomplished in his earthly ministry. He has done everything the Father has given him to do. He said every word he needed to. He has healed every person he is supposed to. He fulfilled every prophecy down to the very last letter. He carefully followed the law in order to fulfill it in every way. Jesus was obedient all the way to death on a cross. Even though he had the ability to end it all with a word. Jesus could have unmade all who were mocking him and torturing him with a breath. It would have not been hard at all. He made everything with a breath. He made everything with a word. He could have unmade everything with a word. But he did not cry out until he said, It is finished, and then bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In light of all of this, from his birth that we celebrated yesterday to his death, burial, and resurrection, it is in light of all of this that verse 9 is to be understood. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. God has highly exalted him. Paul, as he often does, Runs out of available vocabulary for what he wants to say. And so he makes up a word. In this case, hyperypsuin. It's Greek. The word means above exalted. Super exalted. You may have heard this before, but it's worth hearing again. God exalted Christ from his place of humility as an obedient servant to the highest of high places. Paul had the word highest at his, at his disposal. He could use it. He, highest was there. There was such a word. It was used in places such as Jesus' triumphal entry when the people shouted in Matthew 21, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But highest wasn't a word high enough for what happened to Christ and his glorification. He was super exalted, higher than high. As much as we can't comprehend the infinite distance that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down when he took on flesh, that much more in the opposite direction is he exalted. You see, Jesus' exaltation is not merely him getting back everything he laid aside in his incarnation. It was more. His exaltation is over and above what his glory had been. John MacArthur says it this way. In addition to receiving back his glory, Christ's new status as the God-man meant God gave him privileges he did not have prior to the incarnation. If he had not lived among men, he could not have identified with them as as the interceding high priest. Had he not died on the cross, he could not have been elevated from that lowest degree back to heaven as a substitute for sin. We need to be clear here that this exaltation of Jesus Christ is not in regards to his nature as God, but his status as God-man. And as such, Jesus' exaltation is at least fourfold. First, Jesus is exalted in his resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead to God's glory. Second, Jesus is exalted in his coronation. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning to God's glory. Third, Jesus is exalted in his intercession. Jesus is interceding on behalf of his people. Hebrews 7:25 says he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people to God's glory. Fourth, Jesus is exalted in His ascension. Jesus, at the close of His earthly ministry, ascended into heaven as a foreshadowing of His his return in absolute glory. In all these ways, Jesus is exalted to the glory of God. And as we'll see later, everything that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did was to glorify the Father. And then the Father in turn glorifies the Son, who in turn gives back this glory to the Father. This is the answer to Jesus' prayer from John seventeen five, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You begin to see that God's chief end is to glorify himself? It must be this way. If it is true that God really is the highest and best and most glorious of all there is, and he is, if this is true, were he to glory in anything other than himself... He would be an idolater. We must seek God's glory because He is greater and we are lesser. But God must seek His own glory because there are none greater. God is the greatest. And this is cause for our joy. Especially given the fact that by the Holy Spirit we are bound to Christ and we are fellow heirs who can and will share in both Christ's suffering and His glory. And as Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, again, the the glory that that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. All of these things are for the purpose of magnifying the glory of God. And God's glory is magnified more as there is an audience to his great grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ in the salvation of sinners. As this is revealed, God's glory is great, increased, made more, when Jesus Christ obeyed to the point of death, the Father's act of exalting the Son is a direct response to this obedience. The Father highly exalted him, and as a seal of this exaltation, he bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, given what we will see in verse 11, this name is best understood, not as the name of Jesus, it's not as the name Jesus itself. After all, Jesus is the name that he was given upon his incarnation. The name, pointed, the, the name Jesus pointed to what he would do, and that is save his people from their sins. In Matthew 1.21, the angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name that Paul is referring to here is not a personal name, but a title and an identity, Lord. At his exaltation, Jesus was given the title of Lord. In his sermon on Pentecost, Peter said, God has made him both Lord and Christ. This name, Lord, shows us that Jesus is the supreme ruler over all. He is the absolute king over the entire universe, down to the very last Adam in the furthest flung corner. This is his title, Lord. And yet, the word Paul uses it is the same one that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the personal name of God himself. This is his identity, God himself. Jesus is God. This, this truth the world hates. This truth and those who proclaim it when it is, when it and his implications are understood are the target of every weapon the world can come up with. It is at this point that the rubber meets the road. Because if Jesus is Lord, And he is, then no one else is. If Jesus is Lord and he is, then he gets to make the rules. If Jesus is Lord and he is, then it is his reality and his world we live in. It is his air we breathe and his water we drink. It is only by his good pleasure that we take the next breath or the next step or wake up tomorrow morning. If Jesus is Lord, then he gets to set the parameters of our worship. If Jesus is Lord, then he gets to tell us how to live. And no one else does. Jesus decides what truth is, what bodies are, and how do we how we use them. If Jesus is Lord and He is, then He gets to tell us, His people, what pleases Him. He also gets to tell everyone else what pleases Him because He is He is Lord over them as well. If Jesus is Lord and He is, then He is Lord over all, whether people people recognize it now or not. They will eventually recognize His lordship. Though by then it will be too late for them to repent and be saved. It will be a recognition of, of his lordship as conquered enemies and not as faithful servants. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord over you. He is Lord over me. He is Lord over the United States of Canada and England, France, Australia, Afghanistan, Russia, China, and North Korea, along with every square inch in between. Jesus is Lord which means nothing else is. And if nothing else is, nothing else deserves worship. Not even a little bit. Not COVID, not the economy, medicine, politics or politicians, your retirement account, the approval of others, or your preferences for which songs we sing. Jesus is Lord, which means your family is not, sports are not, and pleasures are not. Jesus is Lord, and he demands allegiance and obedience. Jesus did not come to make us comfortable. As Stephen Lawson says, Jesus did not come to create a holiday. He was born to die for sinners. And this fact, this fact is cause for more true joy and true comfort than all the things the world can offer combined. Jesus is Lord, and He reigns and rules and is continuing to lay claim to the hearts and minds of men on all the earth. He is not doing this with the wisdom of the world. He's not doing it with the latest technology. He's not doing it by the power of personality or the force of a military. The Lord Jesus Christ is expanding his domain in the hearts of men by the message of the cross through the Holy Spirit, which Paul says is foolishness to the world. In 1 Corinthians he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This word of the cross is the message of the victory of Jesus. This message tells of how and why Jesus is Lord and what we must do in response to this news. That is, we must acknowledge His Lordship and submit to His domain now and forever. This is not a matter of making Jesus your co-pilot or giving lip service to who He is. This is both understanding and submitting to the fact that Jesus owns the plane and you and the air the, pl- the plane is flying in, and thus rightfully belongs in the pilot seat with you nowhere near the controls. We must bend our knees and confess with our mouths, which really means to totally surrender to Him. This is an unconditional surrender with nothing held back, placing ourselves entirely in His hands. And when we do this, we don't lose anything, we gain everything. As Jesus said, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In our submission to the Lordship of Jesus, we gain all things. Romans 8.32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We gain all things because if Jesus is our resurrected Lord of all things, and he is then every word he spoke, every promise he made is more true than we can possibly hope. This includes our very salvation and Jesus sending the Holy Spirit by whom we are united with both our Lord and each other. All of which enables us to do the very thing that Paul is calling for at the beginning of this passage as well as what comes after verse 11. That is, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In Christ we can do this. And also, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom whom you will shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Jesus is Lord. He has been exalted above all and given the name above all names And the result of this exaltation must be what we see next in our text today. Verse 10, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are those even in this community who think this verse means that we should literally bend our knees whenever the name of Jesus is spoken. This is nothing new. Spurgeon said, Some foolish and superstitious persons make this passage a pretext for bowing their heads at the name of Jesus whenever it is mentioned. Nothing can be more senseless because the passage means nothing like this at all. What Paul is doing here is connecting Jesus, the God-man, to the Lord of Israel. He is explicitly saying that Jesus Christ is is the Lord of Isaiah 45, in whom all the offspring of Israel shall be justified. Isaiah 45, verses 22 through 25 say, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall, it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. It is only in the Lord that anyone shall be justified. And to that Lord everyone must submit. Paul knows this from first-hand experience. On the road to Damascus he was knocked to the ground by the sheer glory of Jesus. And after Jesus spoke, Paul had, he had to call him Lord. And Paul never recovered from this encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. We can see this in his letters. He is consumed with the lordship of Jesus, both in proclaiming the news and what it means that Jesus is Lord of all things. One commentator helpfully points out that this little phrase, Jesus is Lord, is the central confession of early Christians. And even now, without such a confession, a person is not a Christian. This short confession summarizes at least four convictions. One, Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah who delivers his people from their sins. Two, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nath- from the town where he was from, Jesus was God in the flesh. Three, the exalted Jesus Christ alone is the true Lord of, the, of this universe. And four, as the true Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ deserves total allegiance. We should, we must understand that because Jesus is Lord and deserves our total allegiance, we must obey him in all things. We must saturate ourselves in his word so that we know what it means to obey him. We can't just follow our gut and do what we think is right because our instincts are so often wrong. Our hearts are deceitful and incomprehensible even to ourselves. I so often do something completely boneheaded and have no idea why I did it. The more we come to understand our own remaining sinfulness, the more we come to understand that we need the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. It is only by calibrating our hearts and our consciences with His Word by the help of the Holy Spirit that we have any hope of living in obedience. It is not only Christians that will bow the knee to Christ Jesus. In the end, everyone will. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Spurgeon says we are taught here, what we are taught here is the great truth that Jesus Christ, though he stooped to the lowest shame, is now exalted to the very highest glory. And even the devils in hell are compelled to own the might of his power. And now he is higher than the highest, Everyone must confess his divinity. With shame and terror, his adversaries shall bow before him. And with delight and humble adoration, his friends shall own him as Lord of all. The point here is that all creation will one day recognize the truth of what is already the case that is, the universal and sovereign reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers do this now with great joy. But the day is coming when even the enemies of Jesus will recognize and confess His Lordship. How much comfort is found here? In a world that seems out of control and spinning ever wilder, Jesus is Lord. In a world where it seems that evil goes unpunished and immorality is celebrated, Jesus is Lord. In a world where it seems that there is no check on sin or the ever more imaginative ways that sinners find to sin, Jesus is Lord, and the day is coming in which the entire created order, the whole universe in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will be in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ in every possible way. The Lordship of Jesus and the very fact that the day is coming all will have no choice but to bend the knee before Him is why we must not keep this to ourselves. We must plead with those who are not already in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ we must tell them that they must come to him now. They must bend the knee and confess his lordship and repentance and faith. They must do it now, today. And if they will come, Jesus will have them with great joy. But if they do not, if they wait until it is too late, they will have no choice but to bend and bow in terror. The day will come when they will see the risen and exalted Christ, that he is not only the true Lord of this universe, but also their righteous judge. And he will judge according to the standard of God's holy perfection and not their best efforts. And even this judgment will bring bring glory to the Son. But this is not where this text ends. Even as God gives Jesus dominion over all creation, and even as one day everyone will give the Lord Jesus Christ every bit of praise, every portion of glory he deserves, even as he receives it, he does not keep it. He turns and gives it to the Father. Even in his exaltation, Jesus remains the model of loving service to God. All of this is, to finish our text, to the glory of God the Father. The end of this hymn of Christ shows us that even the recognition of Christ's lordship fulfills the purpose of the Father and so brings glory to God. It is all for his glory. We must, everyone, bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. We must live a life of submission to this fact, seeking the kingdom of God above all things to the glory of God. We must do this as individuals and we must do this as a church. We must humbly love one another. We must have the mind of Christ. We must lay down the rights we think we are entitled to. We are called to do this to be of one mind to advance the gospel. We are called to do this because Christ did this first. He gave up the rights He was entitled to for our sake to the glory of God. We must glorify God by humbling ourselves, by looking to others' interests. We must be obedient that Christ may be glorified and the Father may be glorified through Him. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to continually submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Help us to glorify you in the way that we live out of this submission to the one who has the name above all names. Help us to humble ourselves before you. Help us to glorify you. Help us to have the mind of Christ in all things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name.